0: Well, if you brought a Bible with you this morning, how about if you open it up to uh, the book of Revelation? And I'm going to ask you to also turn over to the book of Hebrews. So Revelation and Hebrews, if you didn't bring a Bible with you, you're going to find them in the rack right there around you. I'm going to ask for just a little show of hands. If you know someone that you know for sure because of their relationship with Jesus Christ, is in heaven today. Would you raise your hand? I just want you to look around the auditorium right now, okay? Look around, keep your hand up. That is an amazing amount of people that we know that are already in eternity, right? Isn't that amazing that we have that to look forward to? Individuals that we know for sure that we're going to see again? As Michael mentioned this morning, um, last week obviously we we had sad Sunday because we talked about hell, right? So this is happy Sunday because we're talking about heaven And, and this incredible promise that awaits for us, the thing that we have that's hanging out there. So the horror of hell last week, the hope of heaven this week. And so that's why I wanted to take you into Hebrews and into Revelation because there's some anchor verses that really help us process what is in store for us. Let me take you first to Hebrews, and you're going to be in chapter 6. You'll see it on the screen as well. That probably will help you follow along a little bit better there if you, if you can't turn there. Hebrews 6.17 begins talking about the promise that God made. Actually, he took an oath, according to Hebrews chapter 6. And it says this, God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath. So you've got to stop right there and say, what? God is making an oath? Why would God need to make an oath? It says, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge, who w- would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. I, w- I want you to understand the word hope. When you see it in the Bible, it is not the way that you think of hope. We tend to think of the word hope as like a wish word. Uh, I hope the Spartans make it to the final four, right? Right? Okay, then we have to step back and say, oh man, that was more of a wish than anything, right? Okay, so we have things that we hope in, but then we have things we're confident in. When the Bible uses the word hope, it always can be interchanged with the word confidence. Because hope, as far as a biblical term is concerned, Hope is something that is a reality that has not yet occurred. That's a more accurate biblical definition for the word hope. So when you see the word hope placed there, and we're told we're supposed to have a strong encouragement because God's made an oath, the strong encouragement is that we would take hold of the confidence set before us. So what is this confidence that he's talking about? Well, The passage, if you read it in full, talks about eternity. And our God says he's placed eternity in everyone's heart. Now, because you know individuals that are in eternity, you can look forward to the day when you will see them again because of your relationship with Jesus Christ, if you're truly a follower of Jesus. And those individuals were followers of Jesus. We understand that we would see them again. That in itself is a great confidence. But God gives us descriptors of heaven, and that's what I want to explore with you this morning. What does this eternity look like? So here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to pray with you in just a moment before we step into this material, but I'm going to ask you to go to the Father right now in your own prayer relationship with him and just offer up to the Father, God, I know there's things on my heart right now. I'm I'm sure in the moment I mention this, you're going to think of it. There's either an issue on your heart right now or there's a person on your heart right now that is very distracting just because it's such a big issue would you just go to the father right now and ask him just to help you clear your mind for the next 30 minutes and then I'm going to pray with you so just go ahead and do that father I know you hear the hearts of your people and you respond in kind because father we're about to talk about such monumental issues especially this this concept this understanding, this confidence of eternity. We ask that you would help us to focus, make us fully present in the moment so that we would grasp what is at stake. God, we ask for this in the mighty name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. So I told you that God says eternity is in everybody's heart. Let me back that up with Scripture. Look with me up on the screen, and you'll see this from Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes 3.11 It says he has made everything appropriate in its time. He has also set eternity in their heart, yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. What's he talking about there? This is written by Solomon. King Solomon, richest man ever to walk the planet. Wisest man to ever walk the planet. Many leaders of the world came to sit at his feet just to hear him talk. Well, because he had so much wisdom and he had so much wealth, he decided to pour all of his resources into researching what would it be to find complete happiness. So he tried everything, and I mean everything, everything he possibly could to find something that would last, a lasting happiness. But he finally came to the crushing conclusion, there is nothing on this planet that will bring lasting happiness. And he went into the argument that many people are familiar with, that there's nothing new under the sun. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Well, that's all coming out of Ecclesiastes. So he came to this crushing conclusion that, yeah, it's true, eternity is in my heart, and it's out there, but I can't grasp it. I can't comprehend it. God has placed it in my heart. But what we understand, even from Solomon's cry, is people are looking for eternity. People are looking for that long-term satisfaction, but we can't find it on our own. So God has to show us how to find it. Jesus, I want you to listen to him. The night before he was crucified, the night he was arrested, began talking about heaven. Look with me up on the screen at John 14:1, and it says this, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. Remember, God can't lie, right, church? Okay, we just saw that in Hebrews. God can't lie. It's impossible. God has just said, if it wasn't so, I would have told you. So here's what he does tell us. I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that you also may be where I am. Most important thing we can catch out of that passage. Heaven is a real place. Amen? Okay, heaven is a real place. It's as real as New York City or London, England. It is that real, a real place filled with people. It's why the Bible compares the heavenly city to a city because it's bustling, it's teeming with people. So if you have your notes out this morning, maybe you pulled them out of the bulletin, you'll see a few details in there, and I can't remember if this one is in your bulletin, but we actually want to ask this question, where is heaven then? Well, this will help you as you work through the Bible. There's three heavens mentioned in the Bible. And it's very important that you understand what Scripture is talking about when it uses the word heaven. So, the first heaven that Scripture mentions is this one that you see on the screen. It's the atmospheric heaven. And the Bible uses that word interchangeably when it's talking about this space that's around us, the air that you and I breathe right now, where the birds fly, where the jets travel that's the atmospheric heaven and scripture refers to it in ways like this god says as high as the heavens are above the earth so are my thoughts above your thoughts and my ways above your ways and he goes on to say in that same passage from those same heavens fall the snow and fall the rain well that's the atmospheric heaven so you want to keep that in context as you're reading the bible and then the second heaven that's referred to in scripture is the terrestrial heavens and that's the place where the planets are at we see an example of that in genesis chapter one when god calls into existence those spatial beings those terrestrial planets that's the second heaven and the third heaven is the one we're going to talk about this morning and that's the holy heaven the place where god dwells where you and i will dwell forever do you believe that That's what God promises us. We're told according to Philippians 3, our citizenship is in heaven. Our citizenship is not on earth. Now Jesus uses an interesting phrase when he describes heaven. He's even on the cross when he talks about heaven. You remember there's a thief hanging next to him and he says, Master, you remember me when you come into your kingdom? Jesus turns and says to him, I promise you this day you're going to be with me in paradise. He says that in Luke 23, 43. Today you will be with me in paradise, paradisio, the Greek word for it. Why call it that? I think I have a specific understanding of that particular term, and it's not necessarily only because of what it contains, but because of what paradise does not contain. And I wanna help you with that thought as we move forward into this. There is a constant on our planet And it's something that surrounds us every single day. You and I have lived to learn with it. It's part of who we are. And it's persistent and it's absolutely ceaseless. And the effect of it never, ever changes. Because of the fall of man, there is no rest whatsoever on this planet. And by that, I don't mean physical rest only. Yeah, we get to lay our heads down at night. We get, to, we get to crash in the sack, put our head on a pillow, and try and refresh our body physically so we're ready for the next day. But here's what I'm talking about. Every single time that we achieve a degree of victory of some type in our life, when we get some obstacle behind us, There is always, always, always another crisis looming just over the horizon, is there not? Just put it in context this way. Let's say you're really into politics, and maybe you're supporting one of the candidates right now. Let's say that your guy, or or gal as the case may be, wins the election in November. Do do you legitimately believe that when the election is over, you're going to be able to kick back and say, oh, finally, (laughs) everything's going to be cool from here on. See, we don't come to that conclusion, do we? We know that there's going to be some more problems. There's always another crisis looming. There's no rest. Why is that? Because this creation is in bondage. Scripture reminds us of that. Look with me on the screen, Romans 8.22. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together. Okay, so that's the reality. That's what we're living with. What can we look forward to? What can you and I know about heaven? Well, first of all, we should know that it's a city that's designed and built by God. I'm gonna remind you of that, Hebrews 11.10. That's where your fingers are at this morning in, in Hebrews, so you can flip over there or underline it yourself, but it says this about heaven. It's a city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. So did you know that God's an architect? He's also a general contractor. He's a design engineer. Now, if God's building something, it must be pretty magnificent, right? Scripture says he's the one who's building this. He didn't just design it. He's building it. Most of us here have heard of streets of gold. And most of us have heard of gates with with pearls in them. We we hear it used in common metaphors today in in our world. We hear about these jeweled walls. Where does that come from? Well, it all comes from Revelation. Matter of fact, the most expansive definition we have of heaven comes from Revelation chapter 21 and chapter 22. So kind of leaning back into what I taught five years ago, just for a glimpse for a moment, I'm going to take you back into Revelation 21 and 22. So maybe you could flip there and you'll see some of these descriptors. Here's something I want you to know. Heaven is described in Revelation 21 and 22 as this massive cube. And we're told that the measurements are absolutely staggering. And that the foundations are made of these jeweled stones. I don't know about you, but my foundation at my house is made of concrete, right? In, in South Carolina, where my son lives, the, the homes in his neighborhood sits on piers. We bury our foundations. God says, my heavenly city, the thing that I'm preparing for you, it's so beautiful, it's like a bride adorned for her husband, Many of you have been through the the process by watching a bride get ready. We're not talking about just the one day of the wedding. We're talking about the months and months and months of preparation to get ready for the wedding day. In, In antiquity, when a bride got ready for her wedding, she would go out and borrow jewels from her neighbors, things that she could adorn herself with to make herself presentable for her groom. God says that's the way you should be picturing this heavenly city. Look with me at the description from Revelation 21 in verse 11. It says this, the city has the glory of God. Her brilliance was like a very costly stone, as a stone of crystal clear jasper. So John says, I'm looking at it, and I notice it's, it's covered with this Shekinah glory of God. It's the most distinguishing feature. It just glistens. But he also says it's made up like a very costly stone, like jasper. When it's using that description, it's not talking about jasper that you think of today. Jasper in Bible times was like a diamond, like a prism, clear stone that refracted light. And so he says, I see the glory of God, and it's shining through, and there's these magnificent blending of colors. Did you know that your God is a God of beauty? That's our God. Our God is a God of beauty, and he lavishes his beauty on this city that he's preparing for you. Remember what Jesus promised the night before the resurrection, before the crucifixion, John 14:2. Look with me on the screen. I go to prepare a place for you. See, it's very personal, isn't it? I'm going to ask you to do this. I would just want you to make it personal. On three, would you say for me? One, two, three. For me. See, it's for me. It's for you. He's doing it for us. I go to prepare a place for you. So as we go into Revelation, we find that John gets his own personal tour guide. God assigns an angel to John so that John will go inside the city and get a glimpse of this future home, and then he writes it down for us in the book of Revelation. So we go in back into Revelation in chapter 21. In verse 22, it says this. The first thing I saw, I look inside, and I saw no temple in it. For the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. So, no temple. Why does John record that? Well, it's really natural. Because the first thing he would be looking for as a person living in antiquity is a temple. Every capital city of any importance whatsoever has at least one place to worship God. Because as long as there has been sin, there's been a need a need for you and I to connect with God. So John logically looks and says, I don't see a place of worship. I don't see any temple. Why? Because verse 22 says, the Lord God and the Lamb are its temple. Now, that's paradoxical. There's no temple, but there's a temple. And we ask ourselves, well, how can an entity be a temple? Well, let's think function for just a minute. What is the function of a temple? We gathered together here this morning to worship God, right? We gathered together to worship. We've done that through singing. We gathered together to study His Word together. We gathered together to encourage each other and to eat cookies and drink coffee together, right? To care for one another, to hear what's going on in each other's life. That's what people did in the ancient days when they gathered together in these temple settings. But when you're in eternity, you're living in His presence And there's no flaws, and there's no issues in your life. Every need is met. No longer problems that need solutions. So, life in heaven is constant worship in this sense. There's a new constant. There's no longer trauma, there's no longer crisis. The new constant is you're in perfect relationship with God the Father. So, there's no need for cathedrals. There's no need for church buildings because the reason we come to these places is to worship the very one that we'll be in the presence of. And God is there. We get to see him according to Scripture. If you want to know more about this and understand this in a a deeper way, I I taught on this in the book of Revelation five years ago. You can go to the website and pick up more detail on this if you're interested in that, but we don't have time for that this morning, so let's just plow forward. Verse 23 of chapter 1 gives us some details of the city, and it says this, and the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. Is that not radically different from planet Earth? Because you and I are totally dependent upon the sun and the moon. God says we need those two planetary systems to keep our planet in balance. Gravitational pull, radiant heat, we need all those things. John says there's no sun or no moon because the nation, the, the, the city doesn't need it. Why? When, when, just put this picture in your mind. You ever been at home or perhaps you've been in a parking lot at a mall and you see that somebody forgot to hit the light switch on the security lights at noontime? Maybe you've looked and you saw that somebody left on the outdoor lights at your house and it's high noon and all you see is just the little glow of a light bulb. Maybe the filament is lit up. But in the dark, that light, it it brings safety and security. It brings you what you need. Scripture says in comparison to the brightness of God, the Shekinah glory, the sun is dimmed in the presence of God. It's like trying to turn on a security light at high noon. Paul said that very same thing when he saw Jesus on the road to Damascus. The brilliance of God was so intense that the sun was dimmed in the presence of Jesus. Well, there's no need in heaven for the sun or for the moon because God is its light. There's a theologian that lived back in the 1800s and I wanted to share his insight with you. Uh, Around 1850, he wrote this down. Look with me on the screen. The shining is not from any material combustion, not from any consumption of fuel that needs to be replaced as one supply burns out, for it is the uncreated light of him who is light. Know what that means? You don't have to replace light bulbs anymore, right? I spent time yesterday morning and Friday changing light bulbs out in my house. You don't need to do that anymore. The power source is God. And we understand that this illumination is glowing from the middle of the city. It's like a prism or a radiant jewel. Move forward with me into verse 24. Here's some more descriptions. It says in verse 24, the nations will walk by its light. A really interesting insight. Nations, separations, it's, it looks like there. And it says in verse 25, in the daytime, for there will be no night there, its gates will never be closed. So all the nations will walk by its light. What's that talking about? Here's the picture. It's of social life within the city, bustling with activity. And in the broadest sense possible, All people groups are represented, meaning there's no divisions as we know them today. All people groups from the world are represented in heaven if they're in relationship with Jesus Christ. And we find in verse 25 one more insight. The gates never close. Why would John say that? Because he grew up in cities where the gates closed at night. To keep the criminals out. To keep the invaders out. When you got inside the gates, inside the walls of the city at sundown, they shut the gates behind you to keep anyone behi- behind the gates, on the outside of the gates, from coming in and causing you any grief. So you're looking at a complete security system here where God says, there's no need for 911. There's no burglar alarms. This is a place of safety, it's a place of refreshment. Chapter 21, verse 27 also says this, And nothing unclean, and no one who practices abominations and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Is your name written in the Lamb's book of life this morning? That that's God saying, If you belong to me, you're there. You don't belong to me. I don't know you. You're going to be departed from me. We looked at that last week when we talked about hell. Let's move forward in some of the descriptions here in detail by going over to chapter twenty-two. And chapter twenty-two, verse one says this Revelation twenty two, then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb, in the middle of its street. On either side of the river was the tree of life bearing twelve kinds of fruit. So you got this river, right? And it's flowing from the throne, from the presence of God. It's obviously massive because God's throne is massive. God's always associated with being the source of eternal life. So John says, I'm looking, and I'm seeing coming right from the presence of God, this clear as crystal, sparkling like everything else. There's this river, and it's cascading down from the throne of God. And it's sparkling, this fresh stream. And it's a constant source of this everlasting life. But then this insight in verse 2, and in the middle of the street, and translated meaning in the middle of the path, of where the river is flowing through is the tree of life. We haven't seen this tree since the garden of Eden. Revel- uh, Genesis chapter 1 and then Genesis chapter 3. We're told in Genesis chapter 1 that God caused the tree of life to be in the garden. Look with me on the screen Genesis 2:9. On the gro- uh, out of the ground the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden. Now, that tree disappears from existence in Genesis chapter 3 at the fall of man. We understand that we never hear of it again. And there it shows up in the book of Revelation in heaven, a tree of life spreading along the river. What was forfeited in Eden, denied to all the succeeding generations, is now present and is straddling the banks of this crystal river. And we're told there's 12 kinds of fruit, according to verse 2. Have you ever seen a tree that produces 12 different kinds of fruit? God just has an amazing imagination, amazing creativity. Yesterday I was talking with my wife and I said, when when you get to heaven, what kind of job do you want God to give you? And without even hesitating, without even taking a breath, she said, "I, I want to be a gardener in the garden. And I said, why? And she said, I want, I want to be picking that fruit, the, the fruit from that tree. You know there's going to be jobs in heaven, right? We're not just idle. God gives us assignments, we're told according to Scripture, that there's responsibility, things he gives for us to do. Well, this tree produces 12 fruits, every fruit in its own month, according to the passage. So this is what this tells me. In heaven, we eat, right? Okay? Some of you are thinking, chocolate, yeah. Chocolate with no weight gain, yeah. Okay, so I understand that we eat in heaven. Here's how I understand that. When you look in the book of Genesis, you see Abraham and Sarah sitting down and eating a meal with angels. On Easter morning, we looked at Jesus preparing breakfast on the shore of the Sea of Galilee for his disciples, and they sat down and had breakfast together. And here we see God saying, there's a fruit tree in heaven, I'm thinking there's more than just fruit, right? Okay, if you're a carnivore, I'm not sure about that part, but I understand there's, there's food in heaven. See, here's what we've seen so far. Inside, John saw that there's no temple because God's there. And he sees the brilliance absolutely unrivaled, the magnificent splendor. And then he says it's like a garden environment. We're getting this picture that's building in our mind that reminds us of Eden. And here comes this river. Tumbling down, sparkling, crystal clear, cascading down from the throne of God. And as it tumbles down with a path on either side, there's this tree of life. How big is that tree? I mean, my mind goes there. I'm just thinking, what, what is this thing? I don't know if you've been to California and you've seen the giant redwoods or the, the giant sequoias, tallest trees on earth, right? We get that image in our head of what we think of as a big tree. I want to put this tree that Scripture refers to here in perspective with the massiveness of our God by looking at the description of this city, and we get some literal, detailed measurements of this city of heaven. So look with me at Revelation 22, verse 12, because what you see here is a massive cube that God describes as the heavenly city with walls that are made of pure gold. Look with me at Revelation 22, 12. It had a great and high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates, 12 angels. Verse 13, there were three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. So a great high wall, megas wall, right? And it has specific dimensions to it. And not one pearly gate, but God says there's 12 gates And by the way, there's angels guarding the gates. What are they guarding? Why why are the angels at each of the gates? I'm not sure. There's no one to keep out because only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life are there. But we're told there's angels at every gate. Go with me to verse 15. The one who spoke with me had a gold measuring rod to measure the city and its gates and its wall. The city is laid out as a square and its length is as great as the width. And he measured the city with the rod, 1,500 miles Its length and width and height are equal. Now, personally, I'm really curious about this gold measuring tape, right? I've never seen a gold measuring tape, let alone one that can measure 1,500 miles, but we're we're told it's there, but that's probably what should not catch my attention. What should catch my attention is this massive cube. It's shocking in its size, and we're told its length and its width and its height are equal. Uh, Just rabbit trail with me for a minute nasa uses 76 miles above the earth as the re-entry point for any of the space vehicles coming back into our atmosphere meaning this when the space shuttle was active and it it was launched into space when it hit about 90 miles above the planet it's entering what's known as the stratosphere on re-entry it stopped using its thrusters about 76 miles above the earth and it went to what's called maneuvering speed, meaning they could use the ailerons and the flaps to adjust pitch and yaw. With that in mind, if NASA says space begins somewhere between 76 and 90 miles above the earth, And God says, my city is so big, it's 1,500 miles above the surface. John's looking at something that we can't begin to get our mind around. And he says, the city's dimensions are literal. 1,500 by 1,500 by 1,500 by 1,500 miles. If you tried to superimpose this over the United States, you wouldn't be able to do it. It would literally go from the Atlantic Ocean to the Rocky Mountains, from Canada to the Gulf of Mexico. That's 1500 by 1500 by 1500 by 1500. And John says, it's as high as it is wide as it is long. Look what it's made of as you go back into Revelation. Revelation 22:18. the material of the wall was jasper and the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundation stones of the city were adorned with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation stone was jasper, and the second, sapphire, and the list goes on and on in Revelation 22 to tell us there's lots and lots of stones in this wall. You love precious jewels this morning? God does too. God loves precious jewels, and he uses them in his city And the walls of the city are pure, like pure gold, like clear glass. Uh, Many people stumbled over that for years saying, well, John's writing as though this is literal. And and the ancients, especially when they came to that passage, said, wait, wait, gold is not clear. Gold in its purest form on this planet is yellowish. And we, we know what a gold appearance looks like. You can't see through it. However, modern technology discovered that gold in its purest form as we know it is not in its purest form in its purest form, when it's superheated, actually becomes translucent and clear. Therefore, NASA began using it as a coating over the helmets of the astronauts. So when you see pictures of the astronauts on the moon and their helmet, their space shield that protects them from the sun has a glare to it, but they can see through it, it's because it has a gold film coating over the screen of their helmet. We discovered that what John wrote 2,000 years ago is something God always knew. When gold is in its purest form, it actually is clear. Just catch what's being described here. Everything there in heaven is absolutely transparent to let God's glory blaze through this. And I know it's so hard to get our mind around it. So just imagine if you had an assignment this morning. Imagine you have a friend who was born blind, completely blind, and your job was to describe to them a rainbow. How would you do it? How would you begin to picture a rainbow for someone who's never seen a rainbow? That's what John's trying to do for us. I'm seeing things that I can't possibly describe, but I'm gonna use earthly descriptions to try and help you to understand this scene is of breathtaking beauty, and the spectrum is of dazzling colors. Why did God give us all these words? To excite us, right? I'm not ashamed to say that. To build our confidence. The sense of anticipation to give us a hope? And when God says it's real, it's real? Let's look at a further detail by bearing down on the description of the gates. Revelation 22, verse 21. And the 12 gates were 12 pearls. Each one of the gates was a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. Okay, I'm I'm just saying. If you've got 14, 1,500-mile wall, high walls, right, how big is that oyster making that pearl, right? <laughs> I've never seen an oyster producing them. God, God obviously makes pearls. He makes oysters. But that is amazing. It's a single pearl per gate. I, I'm just, I've got this image in my mind of Dorothy in the land of Oz, right, when she walks up to the Emerald City, and, and you see the big green doors, and she wants to get in, and the huge doors swing open. and God says, your imagination can't go there. You can't even get to what I'm trying to describe for you. But here for me, in all of Revelation, is the greatest verse. And it's gonna cause you to go backwards rather than forward. In Revelation chapter 22, we skipped over verse three, and this is what verse three says. There will no longer be any curse. That's cool, church, because that's what we've known all our life. That's what we live with every day. It's the most dramatic change from present earth. What we live with every single day, God's saying there's gonna be a complete removal of sorrow. No more pain, no more suffering, no more trauma, no more crisis, no more death. There's no temple, John says, because God's there. But there's also no curse, meaning no trauma and no crisis. But he doesn't stop there. Right after he says there's no more curse, you aren't going to be facing it anymore, we see this in verse 3. There will no longer be any curse and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it and his bondservants will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. Seeing his face, what is that? And his name on their forehead. What's that? We're talking about a sense of ownership here. We're talking about God saying, that one's mine. Personal possession. Is, is it a tattoo on your forehead? I have no idea. Don't have a clue what he's talking about. I haven't seen it. I just know what it's written there. So God's saying, there's, there's a, I've got a security system. There's going to be no doubt about who you belong to. We have a security system here at church. The security system for the children's ministry is if you're a parent and you bring your child and check the child into the children's care program, there's a name tag that gets put on the the back of that child, right? And you get the matching or the corresponding tag. And if you don't match up to that child, you aren't going to get that little boy or that little girl because that's the security system, meaning your name has been placed on that child. We have the exact same thing here we're looking at in Revelation. God's registration program is I know who belongs to me, and I'm putting my name right on them. Here's what's going on, church. Heaven is not like anything that you and I can imagine. It is much, much greater. Can I back that up from Scripture? I sure can. The truth is, you and I haven't begun to grasp one billionth of the creative mind of God. Paul captures that for us in verse 7 of 1 Corinthians 2. Look with me on the screen. We speak God's wisdom in a mystery. The hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages. Verse 9, just it is written, the things, which have been, the things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. So I dare you this morning, I dare you, name the very best vacation you've ever had. N- name the very best dessert you've ever eaten. Name the most magnificent building that you've ever seen. I dare you, try and match one single experience in your life on this earth with what God says is in store for you. You can't do it because of this truth. King Jesus is getting a place ready for you. Do you believe it? He says it wow, you don't sound like you believe it. God's getting a place ready for you, church, and we are going to be in that place. And knowing that truth has a profound effect on how you live your life today and tomorrow and the next day. Keeping everything in perspective of what's in store for us. Building that confidence. So if you ask me, Mark Kering, do you believe these things that you're seeing? Do you think they're really true? Absolutely, yes. A hundred percent, I believe them to be true. Because my God cannot lie. Your God cannot lie. It is impossible for him. So let me take you 360 degrees all the way back around to the verse we started with this morning in Hebrews chapter six. Look with me on the screen, Hebrews six seventeen. God desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose interposed with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. I didn't include verse 19 when we started, but I did this morning here at the end. Look with me. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast. God says there's two unchangeable things you should know about me. I cannot lie, it is impossible. And my word is my oath, and I support my oath by my word, meaning absolutely without any possibility of variation. What you read and what you see and what you hear from God is true. It's what's waiting for you. And God says, I'll even back it up with an oath, which is remarkable to me because his promises are already unbreakable, so any oath that God enters into is for my benefit. Any oath that God enters into is for your benefit, not for his benefit. Here's the deal with heaven, we're we're landing this plane now. Most Americans not only believe in heaven, and I'm talking the vast majority, not only believe in heaven, the overwhelming majority expect to go there when they die. It's true. If you go out on the street and you begin to ask the question, do you think that you'll go to heaven when you die? Most people are going to answer this way Man, I sure hope so. Or, or, yeah, I think I have a pretty good chance. I got to tell you, church, when you're talking about eternity, you don't want to be just thinking, yeah, I got a pretty good chance, right? Because what is at stake, as we saw last week, is hell or heaven. There is no other alternative. God's Word is very, very clear. When you're talking about eternity, you want to know for sure where you're going to be going. And back in the 1980s when President Reagan was serving in office, a contingent of individuals went to visit him, um, led by Dr. D. James Kennedy. Some of you may not be familiar with him, but a well-respected author and a pastor from the Florida area, a kind of a national leader at the time. He was invited to the Oval Office. He went in and and met with President Reagan and as they were getting ready to leave, uh, Dr. Kennedy thought, well, I'm never gonna have another chance to do this, so I'm just gonna do it. He said to President Reagan, President Reagan, if, if you died today, do you know exactly what you would say to God if you were standing in heaven and God the Father said, why should I let you in? President Reagan paused for just a few minutes and then looked at Dr. Kennedy And he responded this way, well, because he always said, well, right? Well, I suppose I would have to answer with, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life, John 3, 16. That's the answer, church. All of our hope, all of our confidence is placed in Jesus. He is the reason that we have a hope in heaven. All of the answers have to be bearing down on the fact that Jesus died and that he rose again, that he died for our sins and he rose again three days later. So President President Reagan answered the right way. Let me ask you this question. What is your hope for heaven this morning? The answer has to be Jesus. It can't be anything else. So picture the scene. You stand in before the very gates of heaven. And God the Father says to you, why should I possibly let you in? How would you answer that? How would you respond? What will you say? My role here is not just to help you see Scripture and understand what it's saying. My role here is to declare Truth. And two of the most serious passages you will ever find in the Bible are from God's own words himself. When Jesus uttered these words, he says in John eight twenty four, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sin. We know what the consequences of that is. We looked at hell last week. You die in your sin without forgiveness from Jesus Christ. There is only one destination, and we talked about that last week in depth. But gratefully, we have John 14, 6 that follows it up. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. Many people put a negative spin on that verse. I give you a positive spin. What God says right there is there is a way to me, and it's through Jesus Christ. No one gets to me except through Jesus, though. If you never dealt with that issue in your life i'd be so honored to talk with you about it after the service or pastor gary wood as well just be sure and approach us we'd love to engage you in that conversation and just talk it over with you what does this mean because it's such it's the biggest decision of your life here's why i want to bring this passage up with you these things that we've looked at last week on hell and this morning on heaven are all preparation for where we're going next weekend, that your story matters. What's at stake is heaven and hell. And you have a story to tell. And I want to help you to see that through Scripture. So when we get together next week, I want you to have this framework of heaven and hell in your mind. How will you use your story to influence the world around you? I'm going to pray for you for this week ahead of you right now. Would you join me in that? God, we come before you recognizing that Um, We don't know what tomorrow holds, we don't know what today holds, you do, but we willingly recognize that all of eternity is in your hands. So I pray for these men and women, these students who have gathered here today, and I pray that you would remind them of the amazing confidence that we can have in, in what you've prepared for us, but only because of our relationship with you through Jesus. So I pray for these individuals, those who are coming into the next service and those who were here last night that you'll remind us this afternoon and tomorrow and the day after that as we engage with our friends at work and our friends at school and in our neighborhoods, we'll have this predominantly on our mind that eternity is at stake. So God, I ask that you would translate that into boldness. That you'd make us more willing to talk about what we know to be true. And the only reason we know it to be true is because you said it is. We take confidence in that. We put our hope in it. Father, we pray for this in Jesus' mighty name and all God's people said, amen. Have a great week, New Hope.